Shalom, and welcome back to Scripture Central. I'm Lynn Hilton Wilson, part of the team who are helping with Come Follow Me this year. And we're in the middle of the New Testament, the Pauline epistles with Philippians and Colossians this week. These are fabulous books. They both preach a lot about Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Redeemer and our need to sacrifice for salvation. They're wonderful epistles. Both of them are written during Paul's imprisonment. Chronologically, on my chart, you can see that they come after Paul's missions, and they were while he was imprisoned. He has four prison letters, and each of them have a lot of things in common. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. The carriers and the greetings are consistent with who's there with him. The fact that he's in bonds is consistent. And you can see all this on my handout as well that's attached to my video at the base of it. Or just go back to Scripture Central, to the archive, or to Come Follow Me, and you'll be able to find all the handouts there. As you recall, the books were organized by length, not by chronology. So you have to go back to the book of Acts to find in Acts 16, where he's visiting the Philippians. Now, he writes Colossians later, but he never visits them. It's one of the unique things about these two letters. We assume since he's in bonds that he's probably in his first Roman imprisonment, about 61 AD, give or take a year. It's co-authored by Timothy and Paul. These audiences, and we'll just start now with the book of Philippians, are devoted saints who are bishops and deacons, and he has the plural on there, you know, bishops, deacons, you know, the church is growing in this area. And Philippians, I think, is one of his favorite sets of um, communities in the church because he calls them his jewel and his crown. And it's really a positive letter, and it sounds like as if his wife were living there as well. Let me give you a little background on the area of Philippi. Do you remember on Paul's second mission, he wants to go down to Ephesus, but he prays and he has a vision, and there's someone calling him over from Macedonia, from northern Greece. And they say, come and preach the gospel to us. And it appears as if Paul goes from Turkey over to Greece and um, arrives there and has enormous success for a short period of time. But after only a few, two or three weeks, the Jews get angry. He may have stayed there a little bit longer, but persecution starts almost immediately, and he has to leave. And he keeps sending back other companions to check on them, but um, he was only able to visit them twice that we are that are recorded in the book of Acts. The area of Philippi, before Paul's visit, was founded first by the Greeks. Do you remember Alexander the Great's father was Philip the Macedon, and he's the one who settles this area? Then the Romans rebuilt it as a little Rome. And it had a huge population for that day. At the time that Paul's visiting, it has almost 10,000 people, the archaeologists assume. Also, Philippi is where Paul stays with Lydia. Do you remember Lydia? She's the seller of purple. And the reason why Paul got in trouble here is he cast out a devil. And the people who believed in soothsaying and were making their money on this young damsel who had was possessed of some sort or when he healed her, they were furious, and they were the ones that instigated the persecution. One other story that you remember from the book of Acts, they cast Paul into prison. They're so mad at him, and he is singing away with this companion and miraculously are allowed to escape, and he's able to convert the jailer and the jailer's household. But it's a very fertile area. It's very wonderful soil, very rich, and it was a chief city in the area, and there's a major Roman road that goes across it. So a lot of traffic, a lot of international, and also a lot of merchants going back and forth. The book of Philippians has just four chapters, and I'll just go through the outline with you. He always starts out with a very nice greeting and encourages prayers of thanks. And then continuing on in chapter 1, verse 3, he talks about praying for more love and knowledge and judgment. You know, this is really a, a letter of fine-tuning. They're already doing well, and he wants the saints to rise to the next plane and the next plane. He's trying to encourage them to become at one with Christ, you know, to receive the gospel entirely. Chapter 1, verse 12 to 26, he talks about how his imprisonment in Rome, we assume, has actually been advancing the gospel. And then in chapter 1, verse 27 to 30, he gives an exhortation to stand worthy through suffering. These saints are suffering as well. And so in chapter 2, he says there needs to be a unity in Christ, and that if we can give selfless service, we will be united in Christ. 
He also talks about our obligations as Christians to work and share the light of the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 19 to 30, he talks about that Timothy and Ephroditus had come to visit them. In chapter 3, the first 11 verses refer to the blessings and sacrifices that have to be made as disciples. And then from 12 to 21, he uses this great imagery of pressing, pressing toward the heavenly goal. And in chapter 4, verse 1 through 9, he gives his last advice. It's finally an appeal to rejoice in the Lord. And then he concludes verses 10 through 20, giving thanks to, for the Philippians' gifts. And he ends his salutations and final words, verses 21 to 23. So it's a nice short book and filled with beautiful messages. Verse 4 to 5 and 8 in chapter 1 begin in the NIV. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now, I long for all of you with affection. Now, in King James, it says bowels. Remember, the heart is what they refer to as the mind and or the, the thinking, the process of thought, and the bowels are their emotions and their love. So when it says, my bowels are yearning for you, we would say my heart is yearning for you. Just a different vocabulary. You know, he loves these saints. And he also... Um, has Luke there many times, as well as his yoke fellow, and they seem to be doing such a good job. These saints are a little more humble or meek or committed or something that's having them find unity. And so even though Paul was only there for a short time during his second mission and then passed through very briefly on his third mission, and now it's years after that, they are still doing really well, at least by the advice of the letter, that's what we assume. Verse 7 is the first time he mentions his bonds or his chains, and then he also mentions it in verse 13. Now, usually, um, if you're on house arrest, the guard takes his left hand and chains it to the prisoner's right hand. So you can walk around and move, but the guard can use his dominant hand, but the prisoner cannot. Other times when you're in bonds, you are actually... Um, held down. But since Paul describes his arrest as only house arrest, you know, he's able to move around and teach the gospel and people visit him, it, it sounds as if perhaps he was either in chains at some times and then released at others. We're not exactly sure, but bonds may just refer to the fact that he is imprisoned at this time. Skipping ahead, still in chapter one, verses nine to 11, he talks about growing in the gospel. And the text reads, I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in judgment. Be filled with the fruits of righteousness. Many times in this letter, he describes the fruits of the Spirit or the fruits of peace and love and joy. And he's saying, you're good. You're doing wonderful. You're becoming more Christ-like. But continue, continue. There's a far ways to go still. In chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters. Now, that's the NIV. You always know it's the NIV when they correct the gender there for you. I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Now, in the King James, it says fallen out, which is a little harder to understand there. But what he's saying is, even though I'm here, it's increased more curiosity. And the saints have been able to bring in some of their investigators. And, and it's actually turning into a good thing. I'm able to teach the gospel to the people here in the prison. It's really quite remarkable. It reminds me a little bit of when Joseph Smith was imprisoned in Liberty Jail. And the Lord told him, all these things shall give thee experience and be for thy good in section 122. Sometimes it's good to just pause for a minute. And when we're studying the New Testament and say, when has something really hard advanced the gospel? Or when has something very difficult and challenging actually turned out to be a blessing? That's the way I feel about my physical challenges with all my cancers and my going blind. It actually is a spiritual blessing, and I'm grateful for them. And then he goes on to explain a little bit how the gospel was advanced in verses 13 to 14. And I'm going to read from an excellent translation. It's called the Berean Literal Bible, and it reads, My chains in Christ to have become clearly known in all the palace guard and to all the rest, and most of the brothers trusting in the Lord by my chains to dare more abundantly to speak fearlessly the word. So he said, because I'm still preaching, other people are encouraged that they too can open their mouths. Now, this is Nero in, in Rome right now. He is the Caesar and he persecuted the Christians. And so people have become less open about their faith and more reserved. 
And Paul's example is opening up that doorway again for missionary work to spread. In verse 21, he says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is such a great perspective. You know, Paul has been imprisoned, and he has already listed in Galatians that whole time when he was shipwrecked and stoned and everything. He said, if I can just die, I will be so happy because I gain Christ. But if the Lord wants me to live, I will live. And he's got a great attitude no matter what happens. In chapter 1, verse 28, we've got an interesting Joseph Smith translation. And I've got it highlighted on my slides, but I'll try to read it to you. In nothing be terrified by your adversaries. And then he cuts out, which is to them an evidence token of perdition. Instead, the prophet Joseph added who the adversaries were. Those who reject the gospel, which bringeth upon them destruction, but you receive the gospel. And then it ends with the King James word, salvation. This is a wonderful image that um, even though they're hurting you, they're actually hurting themselves spiritually. Even though you're being persecuted and you're being taunted, you can grow closer to Christ. This can become something to help you grow. But for them, it's going to be damaging, much more damaging. Verse 29 and 30 continue on in the BSB. It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Now, this is interesting. Is it ever a pleasure to suffer? Should we seek suffering? Absolutely not. We should not be seeking suffering. But suffering does lead us to our knees and suffering does take us to our Savior. And so I think the message here in Paul's life, which has been filled with suffering, is that suffering can be used to build a stronger faith, a greater trust in Christ, a greater dependency upon him. And so even though we do not seek to live a life of suffering and personally inflicted pain, when it becomes our lot, because this is part of life, we are here to learn from our own experiences, and that includes suffering, we can use it to believe on the Lord even more. Chapter 2 in verse 3 and 4 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. And skipping down to verse 4, look out. It talks about looking for the interests of others. The word vainglory in King James is also translated empty pride. Very interesting that the Book of Mormon message that pride is the source of evil that President Benson reiterated or Elder Neil A. Maxwell's statement that the source of evil is always self-centeredness is consistent with Paul's message here to the Philippians, that we have got to serve others. There are some beautiful hymns in this letter. We don't know if Paul wrote the poems or if he is citing someone else's poems. Were these already hymns used in the church? We know that they were using the Psalms as their hymns according to the Gospels. But these verses here from chapter 2 to 6 to 11 It's a beautiful hymn about the premortal existence. I'll read it to you. Who, being in the form of God, took upon him the form of a servant. Paul is using what's called in the biblical terms, high Christology. That means Christ is the promised Messiah right from the start. It's not that he was born as a baby and then grew up and then God chose him after the resurrection. But he was a son of God all the way through. This beautiful hymn really does a great job of testifying that Jesus was the Son of God from the moment that he was announced until his death and resurrection and continues to reign there now. The other thing I want to add about these verses is this remarkable message of service. Christ came to serve. Do you remember this in the Gospels? Over and over, I emphasized it. He did not come to be ministered unto, he came to minister. If we want to walk where the Lord walked, We need to join organizations that deal with service, like the Relief Society and the Elders Quorum and anything we can. We need to serve in our homes. We need to serve in our communities. That's how we walk with Christ. He came to serve and not to be served. Continuing on in the hymn, in chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, he continues with this theme of becoming a servant, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and became obedient to death. He served his Father in heaven, as we likewise serve him through the Savior. Chapter 12 to 13, we sin. We are like Adam and Eve and fall regularly. However, 
we also have to have the responsibility to do our spiritual weightlifting and do our physical weightlifting. Chapter 2, verse 15 in Philippians reads, that ye may be blameless and harmless, sons and daughters of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights of the world. Now, I added the word daughters, but that was the KJV. I just snuck it in there because it's, again, that same word for discipled. So it's, it, it means both there. And he wants us to be a light to the world. Everywhere we go in every part of our community, whether we're a home or abroad, we need to be a good example of a believer. Chapter 2, verse 21 reads, For all seek their own, and not the things which are Jesus Christ's. That is the natural man. Sadly, that is our natural man. We seek our own will, but we want to bury that in trusting in our God and seek his will and choose to serve him. The last little part of chapter two, starting about verse 25, he begins talking about sending home one of the Philippian saints. So it sounds like the Philippians had sent one of their members down to the prison with Paul, and he became very sick in Rome. In fact, he almost died. And so Paul has nursed him back to health, and thanks to healings, I'm sure, from the Lord, he is in a state now where he's healthy enough to travel back all the way up to northern Greece in Philippi. And so Paul is explaining in this letter, I am sending him back, and thank you for sending him to me, but he's better, so don't worry about it. Verse 25 reads, I thought it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. And then skipping down a ways to verse 27, Please welcome him in the Lord, in 29, with great joy and honor men like him. Now, this is a missionary who came home because he had been sick and you need to rejoice that he served so well and that he was willing to serve and that he served the best he could. He didn't want to get sick. It wasn't his fault. Now, this is something we can rejoice at. Rejoice. No sad faces. Chapter 3 has this interesting image of a dog. Verse 2 says, beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Now, remember in the Judaic or the Mosaic law, a dog was unclean. So the Gentiles had them in their homes as pets occasionally, but not the Jews. They were unclean animals. And so sometimes the word is used for Judaizers. It's sort of a cliche word. I don't know exactly what he's talking about here. Remember, a Judaizer is a Jewish convert who says all converts, Gentile and Jewish, need to completely live all of the laws of Moses, possibly even the traditions, the oral laws, in addition to Christ's teachings. It's not a fulfillment of the law. It is an addition to the law, is how they interpret it, these Judaizers. That's a word that Josephus uses that we've carried on. And then he gives a little autobiographical section, and we get a real feel of what a stalwart Paul was. It's just amazing. Let's read Philippians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now, that is a phenomenal thing to say. Uh, most people admit that they make mistakes. Um, and either Paul's forgetting over the years, or he's saying, I tried to do everything exactly right. I counted my steps on the Sabbath. I tithed my mint. I tithed my spices. You know, I, I did everything I could to keep the Sabbath day holy. Or he's saying, I was blameless because my Savior has taken it from me. But what he's trying to describe here is that the law didn't save him. It's Jesus's atoning sacrifice that saves all of us. And when we want to apply the atonement, we don't spread it on like a sunscreen or something. We repent. We humbly and meekly fall before the Lord, and he allows us to receive his cleansing grace through the Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 14 in the NIV reads, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. You know, this image of pressing is interesting in the ancient world. There's olive trees all over the Mediterranean, and the pressing of the olives were very large community practices and a huge part of the production of their economic survival as well. They use it for their light source. They use it for their food source. They use it for their bodies. And then, of course, the Jews used it even in the temple. The first pressing was the anointing oil. And this idea of pressing an olive is crushing it and you're using those heavy weights and you 
beat him with a bat to get him to fall off the tree. You know, it's, it's not a little gentle harvesting like you would a strawberry or a grape. And in verse 14 in the NIV, he continues on, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So what is the prize? The prize is to return to the presence of God. The prize is to become like Christ. The prize is to receive the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding, we're told in these beautiful letters of Paul. The prize is to gain exaltation. And he's encouraging the saints. You're doing so well. You've gone from your childhood and you're learning and growing beautifully. Keep going, keep going. Verse 17 to 19 reads in the NIV, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. As I have often told you, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Paul's day was similar to ours in that regard. There are many who are blinded by the philosophies of men. There are many who are blinded by satanic deceptions and counterfeits. But I promise that if you follow the prophet and seek to have the spirit, even in turbulent times, you can feel bathed in the spirit. Remember, Paul was a Roman citizen. And so he does this beautiful analogy with becoming a citizen of the kingdom of God in chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there to transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious ones. You know, you're not just going to get a toga, the 35 pounds of white wool. You are going to get the robes of righteousness. You are going to get a prize so great we can't even imagine it um, as your citizenship in the kingdom of God. I want to read chapter 4 in Philippians, starting in verse 1 in the NIV because it gets the gender right. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you who I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. My joy and my crown. This is um, one reason why I thought these were some of his favorite saints, and it's very clear in the letter that they're doing well feel they're like so many members of the church. They just need to be encouraged to continue on. There's much purification. You know, I'm a musician and there's a big difference between playing in a college symphony and playing in a professional symphony and the fine tuning that's required. So I see that these have, as saints have grown and learned about the gospel and are becoming educated. And he's saying, oh, we've still got a ways to go. Keep working on it. Chapter 4, verse 3 reads, I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, to help those women which labored with me. Now, the word yoke fellow is often used for a spouse. It's often used for a work colleague. But in this situation, the reason why I feel pretty strongly that it's a spouse is because it's someone that he's asking to work with the women. So it is probably, especially in that world, in that generation, in that culture, it is a woman asking for help. Now, some people have suggested, could this be Lydia? Because Lydia, the seller of purple, is who housed Paul on his second mission the first time he came to Philippi. Perhaps, but Paul was married before. Now, perhaps his wife died, perhaps he remarried, I don't know. But in his letter to Timothy that we'll read in a few weeks, he says he's the husband of one wife. And I feel like this is such a beautiful example of marriage. And our greatest defense that Paul was married was actually said earlier in the letter to Thessalonians, but we haven't read it yet. We'll read it next. But this is also a great example. Continuing on in chapter 4, verse 3, he continues talking about these women and he describes them by saying, whose names are in the book of life. Now, remember, the book of life is the book where the righteous names are kept. We read about it in Alma, chapter 5, in Doctrine and Covenants, section 132 and 76 and 128. It's mentioned lots of times in the early church. I remember Joseph said he was going to put the Relief Society sisters who donated their pennies for the temple windows. Their names were going to be in the book of life. You know, this is a book of people who have sacrificed and built the kingdom. Chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. 
the reason why this is so terrific is it links back to the time when Paul was in prison in Philippi. And I don't know if they recognize that there, but in chapter 16, verse 25 and 26, he also is recorded to saying that at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises to God. And so now he's telling the saints, don't forget to sing praises. I sang him when I was with you. I sang him in prison. And I want you to continue to sing the hymns of God, praise and worship God through music. Chapter four, verse five and six says, let your gentleness. Now that's the NIV actually. Other translations say your forbearance or your humility be evident to all. The Lord is near. And then he goes on with some advice on being anxious. Do not be anxious. This is verse six, chapter four, verse six. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Saying, don't be frightened to talk to God. Get on your knees and talk to him. But I want to talk a little bit more about that word anxious. We've discussed it in many other New Testament texts, but it's mentioned 10 times in the New Testament. And in King James, it says, be careful for nothing. That's Philippians 4, 6. I don't think that's very clear. So that's why I chose the NIV. Do not be anxious about anything. But the Greek word itself means to be over anxious, distracted. Figuratively, it means to go to pieces. You're just falling apart. And Paul is calling on the saints to overcome their worry by focusing on the Lord and prayer and gratitude and service to pull themselves out of a paralyzed state of fear and trust in the Lord and move forward in your service to the kingdom. I don't know if you've had a chance to read chapter four, verse eight, but as soon as you do, I'm sure it will remind you of one of our articles of faith. And so I have here on my chart, the KJV, the NIV, and the 13th article of faith. I'll read it from the KJV. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, Whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. You know, this is our our beautiful 13th article of faith in part. You know, he uses some of the same ideas. It's worded differently by Joseph. I don't know if he had his Bible open when he penned that Wentworth letter, and he included the 13 Articles of Faith. Many other Christian denominations have Articles of Faith. And Joseph, in keeping with the tradition of the society, wrote out ours in 1842 when asked by the publisher of the Chicago Democrat to write that um, history up. In chapter 4, verse 11 in the BSB, it reads, I have learned to be content regardless of my circumstances. We use the vernacular sometimes in my um, culture, bloom where you're planted. And I've lived in four different countries and I just kept telling my kids, bloom where you're planted. You know, we're planted here. We're going to make something grow. We're going to find something beautiful. And I love this advice from Paul, whether we're in a sick bed, whether we're in a miserable work environment or a very difficult student environment, wherever we are, be content regardless of the circumstances and focus on the things that will help us. And the way we can become content in whatever circumstance is in verse 13. And it reads, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. That is a picture of when I was bald-headed with my chemo. I had such support from beloved family and friends that I was able to feel strengthened from mortal angels, as well as many, many, many administration of angels that I did not see, but I felt were there. Let's move on now to the book of Colossians. This is actually a general epistle. It's not written specifically to a people that he knew. He says, now share this letter with the Colossians and then the Laodiceans. And he's encouraging them to share their letters and read each other's letters. He had hoped to go visit them, but he hasn't ever visited them yet. He emphasizes a testimony of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He gives them a lot of warnings against the falsehoods. And then he teaches some beautiful Christ-like principles. On my map, you can see it's over in Turkey, and it's due east of Ephesians. And he actually is writing to two towns that are very close to each other, and probably, again, during the Roman imprisonment, because Paul is still the co-author. We have the same people taking the letters back and forth, and it's probably about 61 AD, just like the others. 
But these three little towns are interesting. Actually, they're, they're, they're a couple of small cities here. Heropolis has a healing hot spring. And then Laodicea was a very large financial center. Possibly as many as 10 to 50,000 Jews lived between these two big centers. They did a very big cloth dyeing industry. And it's right there on the Lycus River Valley in the middle of southern Turkey. And the town of Klossi is actually a volcanic mountain and valley where there's some fertility and the sheep used to graze there. But they're not normal sheep. These had a dark red wool and it became very popular in the industry to make fabrics and spin this wool. And so they became very expensive. It was a dark red wool that they referred to as Colosseum. That's the name of that dark red. We can date this letter quite accurately because all three of these cities were destroyed in 63 AD. And Paul knows nothing about that. The saints are still there. They're still gathering. He's writing them letters. And so someone else has brought the gospel there. And well, he was either in Ephesus or nearby. Um, But all three towns were completely destroyed in 63 AD. Let's move on to the outline of Colossians. There's only four chapters. He begins with his normal opening and thanksgiving and prayers. He then has a hymn. And this hymn is about Christ as our creator. In chapter 1, verse 24 to 29, he talks about his labor in the church. And then in chapter 2, we begin talking about building up Christ and being aware of deceivers. Identify who Christ is, and then you can identify who the deceivers. And he encouraged them in chapter 2, verse 6 to 8, to walk in Christ And really be careful to not just follow humanity's traditions. 9 through 15, we are made complete in Christ. And then in verses 16 to 23, he goes to address some false ideas and says you need to avoid these. Chapter 3 goes on to this desire for heavenly things and to develop Christ-like qualities. From chapter 3, verse 18, all the way to chapter 4, verse 1, he has these household relationships and gives another counsel to parents and children and masters and servants and husbands and wives. In chapter 4, verse 2 to 6, he gives an exhortation to pray wisely, and then he finishes up from verses 7 to 18 with his personal greetings. And that's another reason why we know he didn't write the letter. He didn't know them, but some of the people that he had sent and had heard about, he knew from other experiences. And so we have to tie it together there. Jumping into chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, the Joseph Smith adds a really helpful addition here. They're talking about spreading the gospel, and they say, the gospel which is coming to you as it in all generations of the world bringeth forth fruit. So he is suggesting that the gospel of Jesus Christ has been taught in many more places than just post-resurrection. The gospel of Jesus Christ, we believe, was on the earth at Adam's time, and an apostasy came. It was on the earth with Enoch and his people, and then followed by Noah, and apostasy took out everyone else. And then, of course, each dispensation. And then we're told that the branch of the olive tree is taken apart and planted in other parts of the vineyard. And we have truths restored that we don't even know about yet in scriptures. But this little change in the New Testament was made very early on in Joseph Smith's translation. And he was taught by the Lord that for generations in the world, the gospel has been preached, not just in Paul's time. I love verse 11 and 12 of chapter 1. He's talking to the Colossian saints about being strengthened in the Lord to receive the inner strength that you need. And it's not just a passive, please help me, please help me. It is an active, what can I do to feel your strength? How more, what else should I repent of? What else would you have me do? Who else can you have me serve? You being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Lord to share in the inheritance. That's skipping down a little bit to verse 12. He wants all the saints to share in the love of God, whether or not he's been able to meet them. He knows he can meet them in heaven. Paul has a fabulous theme of redemption in this chapter. And look at Colossians 1.13 to see our Savior's role at its best. He says that Christ has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And then he goes on to another beautiful hymn. It's verses 15 to 23 in chapter one. It's a beautiful poem in Greek. It's a little harder to see in English, but read it in different translations. Take your time, listen to it. 
Sometimes you have to read poetry out loud, but it describes Christ as our creator and our redeemer. I'll read just a little bit of it from verse 15 and then skipping down to 17 and 18. The image of the invisible God, and that's also translated in other places as the unseen God, the firstborn of every creature, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist, and then skipping ahead again to verse 18, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead? You know, he repeats this word firstborn over and over again. It's very interesting. We believe that the first to be resurrected was Jesus Christ. And according to the text, it sounds as if he is the firstborn of the Father. But that is not clear in other texts. So I'm going to put that one on the back burner and wait for further light and knowledge on that one. Continuing on to finish up chapter 1, verse 18. He's talking about Christ again, and he says, He is the head of the church. I just love this image. You know, it's not Paul's church. It's not Apollos' church. Paul refers to this many, many times. It's not Peter's church. It's our Savior's church. It's not Russell M. Nelson's church. And I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I need to account to him every night on my knees. I need to give a report of what I've done and how I've served him and ask him how I can serve him better tomorrow. Chapter 1, verse 20, about halfway through, it says, Having made peace through the blood of his cross to reconcile all things unto himself. That word reconcile often is, has the same meanings as atonement. It's with God. He, is, he has made it so that we can return to God. We are again being reconciled or again coming back to God, just like the at one month does that same thing if we look at the Greek and the Hebrew meanings here. And then in chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, he goes back to the Garden of Eden. Many prophets do this, especially in the New Testament, as they remind us that we are all like Adam and Eve and all have fallen. I'll read from the BSB. Once you were alienated from God, engaging in evil deeds, but now he has reconciled you by Christ. And continuing on to verse 23, I think you'll recognize this one from Colossians chapter 1. If you continue in faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, now, that is interesting because it doesn't put it in the future tense. I don't think every creature under heaven at the time of Paul had heard the message of Jesus Christ. But we know from our revelations that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Everyone will have the opportunity. That is the beauty. That is the unanimity of our Savior's plan. That everyone can have a chance to hear about it once, hear about it again, and maybe even hear about it a third time. I don't know how many times we have to learn it before. we. I know that I need grace every day, though. Paul talks about being a servant for the church in chapter 1, verse 24 to 29. And remember, this image of being a servant is so important to Paul. He comes from a wealthy, educated, leadership-oriented family. And he has followed the Savior enough to know that it is not about who is the master. In Christianity, masters are taught how to serve. And then we move on to chapter two. And we begin in the first five verses uh, with this warning against deceivers. And it says in the NIV of chapter two, verse four, they were fine sounding arguments. That is exactly the state we find ourselves in now. In our culture, many arguments sound very valid. Oh, I'm gonna complain about this. I'm gonna complain about this. I tell you, when I have studied very, very deeply into the hard questions in church history, I have been blown away. When I've studied deeply in the biblical hard questions, I am blown away by understanding that our culture might be the one who sees things wrong, not the Lord. So keep studying, keep looking, and try to step back and take a galactic view. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by the voices of our world. The law of chastity matters. Christ's teachings matters. The Following the prophet matters, and most of all, receiving the atonement of our God's grace matters. Paul continues on in chapter 2, verse 6, with a lovely invitation. As ye have therefore received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk ye in him. Walk with him. Put your hand in him. Don't do anything without the Spirit. Never give a talk in sacrament meeting or a class in seminary or primary or anywhere without the Spirit of the Lord leading and guiding your words and your thoughts. Verse 7 continues on, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, 
you know, we've had a really strong winter and um, last year and every place I went hiking, trees have been uprooted everywhere. Huge, huge trees uprooted. And he's begging us not to follow that same pattern. And our roots, if we are grounded on our Savior, will hold. We have to be built on him, though, and establish our faith that way. In verse 8 of chapter 2, he continues to warn them, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men. Now, in NIV, it says, take you captive. But this is the New King James Version, and they're worried about being cheated through philosophy. And then in verse 9, also in the New King James Version, it says, In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So Jesus is the physical member of the Godhead. He is the one who came down to earth in a bodily form. He had a body of flesh and blood and bones, and his resurrected body was of flesh and bones as well. In chapter 2, verse 11, he now turns and starts talking about the circumcision. And remember, circumcision sometimes means covenant, and sometimes it actually means the ritual that the Israelites did following their great-great-grandpa Abraham's commandment from God. He says in verse 11 and 12, the circumcision made without hands, skipping down to 12, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through faith in the operation of God. He's saying you don't need a physical operation. You need to be born again in Christ. Join Christ. Baptism now is the entrance into the covenant and come unto him. He's also said the same thing in the Old Testament as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. He's saying, let's get rid of our self-centered, prideful thoughts and let's be humble and meek. That was always the intent. And Paul is picking up then on that Deuteronomy and mentioning it again. We also can read about it in Jeremiah. He talked about it in Romans too. Chapter 2, verse 13 to 15 read, When you were dead in your trespasses, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our trespasses, having canceled the debt ascribed to us in the decrees. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Now that's the BSB translation, and I just love that image. He took away our sins our, of commission, our sins of omission, our self-centered thoughts, and nailed them to his cross. As the perfect being, he paid the price that was required to meet the eternal laws of God. And through him, we can be saved. I absolutely love these chapters. These books are just filled with such powerful testimonies of why we need a Savior and why we need to repent every day. Paul next writes about another false idea. Some people even call it the heresies, and he has five heresies in the book of Colossians. This is the second one. In verse 16 and 17, he said, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or drink or in respect of holy days or on the new moons or on the Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come. Now, this is sort of interesting because he's talking back about these um, laws of Moses. And I mentioned in this area, there were a lot of Jewish um, um, devout people living. And so there's probably a lot of, of persecution saying, you should be keeping the Jewish holiday specifically, and you should be counting your moons, et cetera, et cetera. And he's saying, don't worry. These things were given as a sign to present, to prepare the way for our Savior, first coming and his second coming. Don't, don't get caught up in all this stuff. We need to live the laws of Christ. That's what's the most important. Verse 18, he continues on. I'll read the NIV translation. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and worship of angels disqualify you. Remember, in some faith traditions, people have to go through angels or go through one of the saints in order to get to heaven. But we believe that our Savior is our mediator. We believe we go through the atonement of Jesus Christ to receive purity and sanctification and cleansing, and then we can return to the presence of God. So he's saying, don't get, don't get distracted. You're not going to get to heaven by angels. We all will only worship one, and that it will be Jesus Christ. We have a long Joseph Smith translation, starting in verse 21, and he's in the same theme of, of watching for these heresies, watching out for these falsehoods, and he warns them, and this is all the new edition here. It says, these doctrines and the commandments are of men, and they teach you to touch not. Do you remember the um, 
Epicureans, you know, and the sophists. There are all sorts of different Greek ideas. You know, do touch women, whatever you want. Touch men. You know, there's no law of chastity. And others saying, no, 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 keep your hands to yourself. Never touch anyone else. And we don't have, we have segregated genders and never go near each other. You know, crazy ideas. And he's saying, no, 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 don't get carried away with that stuff. And then going back to the King James, it says, these things which are to perish with the using. And then Joseph cancels out the next couple of lines there and starts up again, which things have indeed a show of wisdom, but they neglect the body as to the satisfying of flesh is added by Joseph Smith, not in honor to God. So he's saying, let's honor God and our bodies are his temple. These are his creations. Let's take care of our bodies. The planet is his creation. Let's take care of our planet. And then he goes on to doctrine of heavenly things in chapter three. And in verses one through four, he talks about how we can be drawn closer to heaven. And I'll just read verses one and two in the BSB. Since you have been raised with Christ, strive for things above. You know, he's asking us to hold on to that iron rod and to go through the temptations and the fog and the difficulty and the tauntings from the great and spacious building, but hold to the iron rod so that we can partake of that great tree of life and live forever without our sins. Verse three has an interesting word in it, this word hide or to lay up or conceal. Let me read chapter three, verse three. For ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Now, obviously they're alive. What's what's he talking about? I think he's saying you are dead to the heresies. You're dead to the things of the world. You, you've put off the natural man. You're now, you're a Christian. You're born again. Your old man is dead, I think is what he's trying to say. But this phrase, hid with Christ, is also mentioned in the Restoration. In the Doctrine and Covenant, section 86, verse 9, it reads, For ye are lawful heirs according to the flesh, and have been hid from the world with Christ in God. The prophet Joseph Smith also used this phrase to hide someone in Christ, but he's um, just writing in his journal, and he's describing something that happened with someone that day, and he's using it as a code word for something that was too sacred to go into detail for. So on May 16th, 1843, Joseph wrote, Before retiring, I gave Brother and Sister Johnson some instructions on the priesthood. And putting my hand on the knee of William Clayton, I said, Your life is hid with Christ in God. And so are many others. Nothing but the unpardonable sin can prevent you from inheriting eternal life. For you are sealed up by the power of the priesthood unto having taken the steps necessary for that purpose. And you can read the whole thing in the Joseph Smith papers, and I've got all the footnotes and things on my handout that should be attached. But this is a powerful principle. And I'm sure you've recognized some of these ideas. It's the same as your calling and election made sure that Second Peter talks about in chapter 1, verse 10. Or we can read about it in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 53. We also read about this in Ephesians, which was referred to then as the Holy Spirit of promise. It's this permanent sealing that's described in section 76 and 88 and 124 and 132. <laughs> It's also referred to in 2 Peter chapter 1 as the more sure word of prophecy. Joseph also uses that in the Restoration, section 131. You know, the Lord inspires Joseph with these biblical phrases, but he defines them differently than the rest of Christianity. All these words do not mean the same thing. They are very familiar to us in our faith tradition. But when we use them with our Christian friends, they have different meanings. The last one that is used to mean this same word is not in the Bible, but it's, it's in the book of Moroni, chapter 7, and the Doctrine and Covenants, section 101. And that is to enter into the rest of the Lord when your life is sealed up in his. It's, it's really a very motivating thing. And Paul is writing these people because he thinks they are on the verge of becoming close enough to the Lord that, that they need to be focused on coming unto him. And sure enough, their whole city is going to be destroyed in a year or two. And so it's very timely. Chapter 3, verse 5 to 17, he's talking about developing Christ-like qualities. And he says in verse 10, this is the NIV, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of the creator. And continuing on in verses 12 to 13, also in the NIV, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another as the Lord forgave you. That is a Christ-like characteristic. If we can forgive 
We are acting as our Savior. It is a difficult thing to do, but he has asked us to do it. Verse 16 continues on in the NIV. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. This is such a joyful verse, asking us to praise the Lord, especially in the, our choices of music. In the NIV, it reads in verse 17, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have this same message even in our temples, do everything you do in the name of the Lord. And it comes right here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. The last part of chapter 3 now, all the way up to chapter 4, verse 1, is another household of conduct. We talked about this a little bit in Ephesians, and we're going to talk about it more again in Peter. But I'll just go through these. He gives the wives the counsel in verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Submit yourselves to the husband as it is fitting to the Lord. And then to the husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh to them. And then to the children, obey your parents. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Slaves, obey. It's the Lord that you're serving. And masters, give to your servants. This is chapter 4, verse 1. That which is just and equal, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Now, as we talked about these things before, I made a really big deal on the word subject. If you're going to submit yourself or be subject unto someone else, it, we're not talking about the military. We're in a family organization. So it's the later definition that means we want you to cooperate. We want you to be engaged. We want you to work together. We want you to carry the burden. And it just is so crazy to me the first time I read these to say, why aren't you denouncing servitude? Why are you giving masters counsel and slaves counsel? Why don't you just say slavery is wrong and abolish it? Well, as we talked about before, um, I feel very strongly that Christ wanted to teach masters how to serve. And so the next generation of the early church did the same. Finally, in chapter 4 of Colossians in the NIV, verse 2 reads, Devote yourselves to prayer. Be watchful and thankful. This is such good counsel for our day. We have to have our hearts drawn out into prayer all the time. Be watchful and thankful. Verse 6, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, this is the BSB translation, but do you remember what salt represented? Every one of the sacrifices had been sprinkled with salt. It's a sign of the covenant. He's saying, I want you to be the salt of the earth. He's going back to this around the mount, isn't he? This is just what our Savior said in Matthew chapter 5. And then he gives his final personal greetings in chapter 4, verse 7 to 18. And some of those names you'll recognize. Onimius is actually a very important person that we'll talk about when we get to the book of Philemon. But Mark and Justin and Luke, the beloved physician, is here. Tychius is here. And then he ends with his own handwriting. You know, he picks up the quill and signs his name and says, here I am. These are beautiful books. And I hope that you can feel the testimony of Christ coming from the words that Paul has spoken and that we may fall on our knees in gratitude and repent of our sins, and become strengthened, become spiritual giants as we mature to prepare the world for the Lord's second coming. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.